Welcome to Counter Melody, the podcast on great singers and great singing. I am your host, Daniel Gundlach, and I am thrilled to share with you the opera and classical singers about whom I am most passionate. I hope that when you hear these voices, you might echo me in saying, God, I love her, or God, I love him. Now, Without any further ado, I bring you this week's episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 39 of Counter Melody. I can scarcely believe that I have been doing this for 39 weeks straight. By the way, I had a few corrections from last week. First of all, and most importantly, Back to Before, which we heard performed by the late Marin Maisie, is not by Jason Robert Brown, and it is not from Parade. It's from frickin' Ragtime. And it's by Flaherty and Aarons. In fact, I even saw a performance of the scaled-down revival of Ragtime on Broadway. That would have been many years ago now, before I ever left New York. But it is a phenomenal song, and it's certainly a sentiment that we need to be processing, particularly we white people. If you can believe it, there were people challenging me on posts that I made on Facebook this week, telling me, oh, but the looting, the looting, the looting. If you don't know Kimberly Jones's incredibly eloquent and enraged response to that sort of thinking, look her up on YouTube. Educate yourselves. Honestly, I mean it. There was also a note from my not-boyfriend David on the David Crosby performance of Woodstock. He said, I really thought you would have mentioned that David Crosby was at Woodstock, which gave his performance that came nearly five decades later added resonance. And plus that, he produced Joni Mitchell's first album. They have had a long-standing personal association over decades, which may or may not have involved a physical relationship as well. Say alleged, because of course one doesn't want to make these statements without having any knowledge to back it up. And God knows I have no knowledge of the intimate lives of either David Crosby or Joni Mitchell. Let's leave it at that. Also, I always forget to do this, but... If any of you feel that you are able to support me with a monthly contribution via my Patreon page, please visit patreon.com slash countermelody, and you can make a monthly contribution of any amount there. It gives me such joy to bring these podcasts to you, but just to give it a little perspective, I'm poor as a church mouse, and this is my only source of income. And I don't want to get kicked out of Germany, (laughs) because I'm not making enough money. Anyway, if you're so inspired, please do contribute. Thanks. I must sit down, really, with these feathers and high heels. Well, it will look splendid. Shall we hit the song? And this is to you, because I'm dedicated to you. Thank you for coming. Somewhere over the rainbow, way off. 
in a lullaby Somewhere over the rainbow skies are blue and the dreams that you dare to dream really do Someday I wish upon a star And wake up where the clouds are far behind me Where troubles melt like lemon drops Away above the chimney tops That's where you girls of this week, Judy Garland, who celebrated her 99th birthday on June 10th. Next week, on June 22nd, is the 51st anniversary of her death, so I thought it was important to acknowledge her. That performance that we just heard was Judy in her final public performance in Copenhagen on the 25th of March, 1969. I still remember the day that she died, It was my sister's birthday. We had been out all day with my Aunt Judy. We came home. The evening paper was lying there inside the back screen door. We opened it up. I picked up the paper and it read, Troubled Life Ends for Judy Garland. I was plunged into enormous grief. I had lost my beloved grandfather not so long before that. And it was just too much for me. I knew Judy primarily, of course, as Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, and I just couldn't imagine Dorothy dying or that her life would have been troubled. I knew so little. I was such an innocent. I went into big mourning for Judy. When Kalas died about eight years later, I was a lot more savvy and a lot more bereft, but it was the same kind of feeling. If happy little bluebirds fly beyond the rainbow... 
Why, oh, why couldn't Judy? Oh, man. I love her so much. Why? to today's subject, Iliana Kotrubash, the Romanian soprano, who on June 9th celebrated her 81st birthday. I've wanted to do a full episode in tribute to her for some time. This was the perfect excuse to do so. Here we are. Happy birthday, Iliana Kotrubash. I love you with all my heart. I hope that my listeners, by the time we get to the end of this, will find themselves with, if necessary, a newfound appreciation for your art history. What we just heard was a 1973 recording of a portion of the Et Incarnatus Est from Mozart's C minor Mass. Raymond Lepard was conducting the new Philharmonia Orchestra. Her voice is so distinctive. For me, this is one of her iconic performances. A few weeks ago, I began a series on... I still haven't come up with quite the right thing to call it, but I wanted to discuss certain artistic attributes. So I did two episodes on charm, which I thought were quite charming, actually. Then I had done a single episode on glamour. I still have several episodes on glamour on the back burner, and they will be coming in future weeks. As much as one can plan anything ahead these days, I am planning to present an episode on French glamour and on baritone glamour as well. But today's episode, I'm going to begin my discussion of that third artistic trait, pathos. And who better to illustrate 
pathos than that mistress of pathos, Ileana Kotrubash. I have looked up pathos in the dictionary. The Cambridge Dictionary gives us this definition. The power of a person, situation, piece of writing, or work of art to cause feelings of sadness, especially because people feel sympathy. I think that's a fairly limited definition. I have not agreed with all of these definitions that I have gotten from various dictionaries to define these, for instance, glamour or charm. Let's just ever so briefly consider the Greek derivation of the term. I do find this somewhat useful. Pathos appeals to the emotions of the audience and elicits feelings that already reside in them. Pathos is a communication technique used most often in rhetoric, as well as in literature, film, and other narrative art. That covers a little bit more territory, I think. What is it that makes Iliana Kotrubash, such a wonderful representative of pathos, evoking feelings in us that are already there, but that also bring up more than a tinge of sadness, even when we're discussing joy. There's a vocal quality that other singers possess as well that is sometimes called the tear in the voice. And I do think that Kotrubash, even when she is expressing joy, taps into that quality, that vocal quality that she so thoroughly possesses, that way of making us feel that we are so close to tears. Now, the example that I played for you first, there's a very human quality to her singing. It's not just that being close to tears sound. It's also Frankly, you hear how her technique is functioning. Sometimes it doesn't function as well, but you hear that what she's doing. It is not something that flows so smoothly as with an artist like, not that they're vocally similar, but Kiri Tikanawa. I think of her more, not to overdo the comparison, but I do find parallels between her and Kalas, for instance. Her and... Irmgard Seyfried, her and Lucrezia Bori, her and Hildegard Behrens, of all people. None of these were singers who possessed perfect voices, but they had this ability to grab you by your feelings and make you experience the same thing that they were singing about. If I had been doing the podcast a year ago, I definitely would have done an 80th birthday tribute. This is a perhaps an off year to be celebrating her, but I think that any day of the week, any month, any year is a good time to be celebrating Ileana Kotrubash.
That was an excerpt from Raymond Lepard's overripe performing version of Cavalli's La Calisto, in which Ileana Kotrubash sang the title role at Kleinborn in 1970 and again in 1971. Some people find that unnecessarily overwrought. I find it sublime. I'm not going to go into the story right now. It's an absolutely delicious confusion of genders and identities, as only Cavalli can do it. It's a fantastic recording. There's also a video of it that you can find on YouTube, and I hope you will. It's interesting, I think, that Kotrubash's early successes, many of them, were in what nowadays would be considered early music. Around the time that Cavalli recording was made, Kotrubash was also participating in a series of Bach cantata recordings with Helmut Winschermann, and I'm going to play an excerpt from one of those. This is from Cantata 173, called Erhöhtes Fleisch und Blut. The movement is a quasi-duet for soprano and bass, and it's called So hat Gott die Welt geliebt. The other soloist here is Hermann Prey. The structure of the piece is such. It's in three verses. The first verse is sung by the bass or the baritone, the second by the soprano, and the third by the two voices in duet. In this truncation that I'm doing, I'm leaving out the first verse just for time's sake. We're going to pick up at the beginning of the second verse. know if Kotrubash ever sang any Handel on stage, but 
We are quite lucky that she participated in a 1977 recording of Rinaldo with Jean-Claude Malguar, in which she sings the role of the hapless heroine Almirina, who's certainly a woman in desperate straits. I'm going to play a portion of her La Chacchio Pianga, certainly one of the more pathetic Handel arias out there. Iliana Kotrubash was particularly celebrated for her Mozart, and we're going to listen to a few live and studio excerpts from some of her Mozart assumptions. The first, one of her early recordings, came out in around 1974, in which she sings De Spina in a most curiously cast recording of Così fan tutte, featuring Monserrat Caballé and Janet Baker as the two sisters. And those two sisters were definitely quite different from one another. Kotrubash is a knowing, yet winsome, almost childlike Despina. It's a very interesting characterization, and I'm going to play you her aria in Uomini in Soldati in this recording conducted by Colin Davis. Oh, <laughs> 
There's a musical scrupulousness. This is combined with a voice that has a real earthy quality. So this makes for a really interesting balance between precision and earthiness, which doesn't disturb me. It's a wonderful conundrum, actually. Now, this next example is from a live performance from the Wiener Staatsoper of her Susanna. And here she's singing the latter duet with none other than the wonderful Bulgarian soprano Anna Tomovacintov, who has such a pure, luxurious voice. It seems to bring out the most refined aspects of Kotrbash's singing. It's also conducted by Herbert von Karajan, who we know was somebody who demanded vocal luxuriousness. So it's an interesting coupling, for sure.
By the time this next recording was made, in November 1982, one can already begin to see some of the chinks in Kotrubash's technique. She was very, I hesitate to say overexposed, but she was really spread very thin. Let's put it that way. And here she is singing in the Met's new production of Idomeneo. This is from a live telecast in November 1982. She's singing Sel Padre Perdei, the second act aria of Ilia. Even though the voice is not pristine, her use of it is, and her musical instincts remain absolutely flawless. It's interesting to, again, to hear those two forces working out how they're going to coexist together. Amina was another Mozart role that Kotrubash really made her own. She sang it many years running in Salzburg under the baton of James Levine. This is an excerpt from a live performance in Salzburg from August 1982, a few months before the Idomeneo. And here she's singing with the German baritone Christian Bösch as Papageno. I'm playing a truncated version of the Bimenon duet, which, in spite of its, let's say, outdated sexual and gender politics, is still one of Mozart's most gorgeous compositions. What I want you to listen to here, you hear her technique at work, but it's always in the service 
of the music. So when she does those big cresting phrases at the very end of the duet, you hear the top doesn't quite want to open up as beautifully as it does in some of her earlier work, but she sings as if everything were lined up and working correctly. In that way, I think it's not dissimilar to Kalas. Of course, Kalas was no Mozart singer. They did have a few roles in common, which we will discuss as the episode progresses. Geduld, Freund. Der Himmel wird auch für dich sorgen. Er wird dir eine Freude schicken, ehe du dir's vermutest. singer, as I said. I believe she only sang one role on stage of Mozart's, and that was Constanze in Entführung aus dem Sarai, or Il Ratto dal Seraglio, or something. I can't remember what it is in Italian, but she did sing Constanze in Italian. Kotrubaj, perhaps surprisingly, most definitely surprisingly, took on the role of Constanze as well in 1980. I think she sang it in Salzburg the prior year as well. Anyway, the very late 70s, early 80s, she did a couple productions of Constanze and the Viennese press attacked her. I remember reading an interview with her in Opera News in which she said something like, I wanted to tap into the humanity of Constanze and I wanted to show the depth of her feeling, her despair, her hope, all of these things. You can find a live recording of this from 1980 with Lauren Mazel conducting. Peter Schreier is the Belmonte. This is the Martin Alla Arten, which is, in my opinion, really 
one of the most taxing Mozart arias there is. Of course, Kotrubash sings the more lyrical Traurigkeit quite beautifully. The first aria, Achichliebte, she has quite a bit of difficulty because she's got to like hang around high Ds and high D was not an easy note for her. But in spite of that, she sings the freaking shit out of the Martin Alle Arten. It's as if she was like, how dare you tell me that I can't sing this. I can sing it, I have something to say, and you're going to listen. And she does it with enormous reserves of strength that I was really surprised to hear. I've just picked a little portion of the aria to play for you, and I hope that you enjoy it as much as I do. Like I said, it was a big surprise for me.
And we're just going to look very briefly at Cotrubauche's French assumptions because she sang a lot of French repertoire and I think she sang it beautifully. It was particularly well suited to her, whether that was Antonia in Comte Hoffman or Manon or Louise, which she recorded in, I think, 1977. This recording is also conducted by Georges Prêtre, who conducted the Louise. It's Comme autrefois from Pearl Fisher's Les Pêcheurs de Perles of Georges Bizet. I think it's one of the finest examples of her vocal poise. It's also enormously expressive. I hope you enjoy it. In December 1976, Iliana Kotrubash, I was delighted to discover, sang a recital at Covent Garden with Jeffrey Parsons as her accompanist. One of the pieces that they did was the Sept Chansons de Clément Marot by George Enescu. Well, I have a personal association with these songs that I will tell you about sometime. They have been extremely dear to my heart for many years. Clément Marot was a Renaissance poet. These are some of the most gorgeous performances of these songs I've ever heard because I couldn't pick. I'm going to play the last two songs. The acoustic is a little over resonant, a little tinny, 
but it's a wonderful chance to hear Kotrubash singing French, for one thing, and also as a recitalist. She didn't do a whole lot of recital work, but there's a wonderful Salzburg recital. She also did, again with Jeffrey Parsons, a live performance of the Italienisches Liederbuch of Hugo Wolf. That was with Thomas Allen. That was released on a recording. I thought I had a rip of that recording. I don't have it right now. Somewhere in my library, somewhere on the face of this earth. The first of the two songs we're going to hear is called Jean-Jean Propos, c'est trop chanté d'amour. Let's change the subject. We've been talking enough about love. Let's talk about the pruning knife instead. All vintners use it. Then from there... The poet begins to talk about wine and Bacchus getting all drunk from drunkenness. We end up right back at the subject of coupling and procreation. Just seems there's no getting away from it. last song of the cycle is called Du Confit en Douleur, and it's about a person who's suffering, and he says, Si j'ai du mal, malgré moi je le porte, voilà comment je languis en malaise, sans nul espoir de liesse plus forte. If I'm suffering, I carry it in spite of myself. 
and if someone tries to offer me comfort, it does nothing. So I'm pining away, no hope, no chance of finding joy. When I die, my pain will be dead. But meanwhile, my poor heart somehow endures, and I find that I love my own misery, and therefore I derive a certain kind of joy from being brokenhearted.
Lest we think that Kotrbash only sang roles that were heartbreaking ones. No, not at all. In her Mozart roles, she shows an enormous sense of fun. And two of her most successful parts were Norina in Don Pasquale and Adina in Elisir d'Amore. Particularly Adina, I think she made a wonderful impression. I still have a problem with Don Pasquale. Oh man, those characters are so mean. Adina's not very nice either. What's interesting is that Kotrbash takes these characters that are really not very nice, but she finds the humanity in them. So this duet, which I've again truncated somewhat, is from a live Covent Garden performance in early 1977. The tenor because of my trimming, we don't hear too much of him, but it's Luigi Alva, the Argentinian tenor. He's sort of the village idiot, but he's in love with this rich young widow named Adina. She's drawn to him, but really treats him with an awful lot of disdain. Well, you guys probably know the story. Anyway, it has to do with buying this fake love elixir from this quack that is passing through the town. And in the end, the fake elixir works its magic, and Adina and Nemorino end up together. This is from earlier in the opera, when he's saying, why are you so mean to me? And she's like, well, (laughs) it's a good question. Why don't you just ask the breeze why it uh, flits here and there? There's no particular reason, it's just its nature. It can't help itself. And then I cut to the end of the duet, and she says to him, you just gotta get over yourself, big time and quick. You hear her increasing impatience with him. She gets a little more stern, but of course the attraction is always there, and that's what makes it so charming. But in that conflict, she is not afraid to play up the part of the bitch. And in spite of that, we find her charming, we find her delightful, we empathize with her.
we're going to talk about Kotrobash's two greatest roles, and I don't think I'm alone in feeling this way. The first is Mimi, and she made her first big international mark as Mimi, stepping in at La Scala at the very last minute for Mireille Lafreni in, I think that was 75. She also made her U.S. debut in Chicago as Mimi. She made her Met debut in 77 as Mimi. She sang it all over the world. She sang it later on, a few years later, in San Francisco. There's a wonderful document of that as well. She also sang it at Covent Garden. And there's a wonderful video of that, and I recommend that everybody look that up. It was a small-scale voice. She's one of those less-is-more singers. And yet, when it's necessary to fill out a phrase with the right kind of expansion, she does it, and she manages it, and she rides the crest of that phrase, even within the confines of her relatively modest voice. And furthermore, it's extremely well-suited to the part of Mimi. If you ask me, in that relationship... Who's the poet? Everybody says, oh, it's Rodolfo. Mimi is just a seamstress. I'm sorry. There's an enormous soul in there. Mimi is the poet. She even corrects Rodolfo on her deathbed when he says, oh, Mimi, you're so beautiful. And she said, am I still beautiful? And he says, yes, as beautiful as the sunrise. And she says, you screwed up your metaphor. You mean as beautiful as a sunset. Wow. One of Kotrubash's most significant artistic collaborators was the conductor Carlos Kleiber, with whom she did both Bohem and Traviata live and, at least in the case of Traviata, on recording. I remember reading in an interview she said that he wanted her to do Butterfly. Man, think about that. What kind of a butterfly she would have been. She said she would only have done it with him, and unfortunately, it just never came to fruition. Also, never came to fruition a studio recording of Bohem with the two of them together. But what we do have is a live performance from La Scala, March 1979. Not in great sound, but it was a legendary performance. Also featured Pavarotti as Rodolfo. I'm only going to play you one excerpt of her Mimi, but it is an extraordinary one. It is the death scene. Pavarotti was usually a bit of a, let's be kind, a dramatic cipher. But here, you hear his acting with his voice. And when you watch the video for this, which is also available, even though it's not in a very high quality print, you see he's even physically engaged and genuine and sincere. I love his singing, less taken with his acting in general. Here, he rises to the heights that both Kotrubash and Kleiber inspire him to.
Kotrubash's other really, really great role, and she had many of them, believe me, but the one in which people still remember her and for which she will be forever associated is Violetta in La Traviata. She sang it in a 1981 telecast from the Met. She wasn't in terrific voice, but there's still a video document of her doing it. Even if nobody has bothered to reissue it. Don't even get me going. I'm not sure when she did her final Violetta. I think one of the first ones, at least, was in Vienna in 1971, opposite Nikolai Gedda with Josef Kripps conducting. There's a live recording of that, thank goodness. I recommend it to everyone. She's in her freshest voice. It's something to hear. I'm going to play excerpts from three different performances. The first is a live performance in December 1983. And as we've already seen, by that point, she often sounds tired, fatigued, the voice is not quite as well knit together, but in spite of that, she pulls it together here. The occasion was a gala in honor of Maria Callas, and I think about four or five different opera houses of the world were beaming their contributions, and then it was all collected together and broadcast. This performance took place on December 11th, 1983. Her offstage, Alfredo, is none other than Alfredo Krauss. Couple things about that. First of all, in the legendary 1958 Lisbon Traviata with Calas, he is the Alfredo. He's very young there. I think it was the only time that they sang together. We don't have a studio recording of Calas from her prime singing Violetta, but that has become a substitute for that. There are a couple other live performances as well. I prefer the Covent Garden one from 1958, but the Lisbon Traviata is also wonderful. Callas' Alfredo is singing offstage here, and Kotrubash, in this role, carries the mantle of Callas, and she wears it proudly, and her Violetta is very different than Callas's. Here, even though she's just the slightest bit past her prime, she's still, up until the final E-flat, completely spot-on. She becomes Violetta. She uses the music and the markings of the composer. She sings the coloratura so cleanly. And by the way, her coloratura, it's always so profoundly, perfectly in tune. Every note is in tune. We can say that about very few Violetta's, certainly something to admire. Beyond that, the way that she finds the humanity of Violetta, man, I just can't say enough about her performance.
will go out on a limb and say that I don't think that any other singer of her particular generation was able to reach the heights or plumb the depths that she did in terms of the range of expression that she tapped into and that she evokes in us. Now, I'm sure you heard the E-flat at the end. I was almost going to dub in a different high E-flat. I personally wish that she had not felt compelled to sing that note. Verdi never wrote it, and the very few occasions in which she actually manages to make it resonate in the way that it should. Here, it's like a desperate grab. Even on the studio recording with Carlos Kleiber, you can hear that they patched it in, and it was not a comfortable note for her. And in spite of that, she's a Violetta to whom very, very, very few other artists can hold a candle. I mentioned the studio recording with Carlos Kleiber. I'm going to play now a portion of the final act from a Munich performance in April 1975 with Carlos Kleiber conducting and Giacomo Aragal as her Alfredo. This is the Parigio Cara duet, followed by the moment that if you're a human being and if you have any kind of heart or any kind of soul is the part that will make you completely fall apart. That's when Violetta is desperately trying to pull herself together so that she and Alfredo can flee Paris, go back to the idyllic life in the country that they once had. But she breaks out with this sustained high G, Grandio morirsi giovane, to die so young after I've suffered so much as I'm on the brink of finally having my sadness, my sorrows, my suffering end. This is what I get. Oh! 
going to play the final pages of Violetta's death scene from a different performance just a few months later. This is from Lyric Opera of Chicago again, September 1975. Her Alfredo is once again Alfredo Kraus, and Piero Cappuccilli is that bourgeois Papa Germain. This is the Prendi queste l'immagine section where she says, I'm giving you this portrait of myself, this little locket. Please give it to the young girl that you find who will become your wife. Tell her that there is an angel up in heaven praying for both of you.
I have so much more that I still want to share and say about Iliana Kotrubash. So I've decided that I will do a bonus episode for all of my Patreon subscribers. That means if you support me with just a dollar a month, you can access that episode. I'm going to speak about the time that I heard Kotrubash sing Mimi. I'm going to talk about some of her more unusual roles. I'm going to go into a little more depth about the role of Violetta. I'm going to talk about the larger parts that she took on, and I'm going to talk about her sudden retirement from opera and her brief return to performing. I'm going to round off the episode with this performance of the soprano movement from Brahms's German Requiem, Ihr habt nun Traurigkeit. It's a live performance from the Edinburgh Festival in August 1978. Carlo Maria Giulini, with whom she also recorded Gilda in Rigoletto, is the conductor. Here's what I want to say about her singing a part like this. If you want to hear someone with an absolutely seamless vocal range who can spin out lines forever and a day, that's probably what's ideal for this part. And that is what a singer like Kundula Janowitz brings to the part. Kotrubash doesn't bring that. She brings, I want to say it's the voice of a wounded child, a child who has died. The words are, you now have sadness. But we'll see each other again, and your joy will be something that no one can take away from you. Look at me. I suffered for a long time, but now I have found enormous comfort. Oh, the timeliness of words like that. I really see her not as a disembodied angel here, but as a soul that has been through the torments and just has barely emerged from that torture and that suffering and can still say, don't weep, we will see each other again.
My dear ones, I look forward to bringing you episode 40 next week. It's going to be a special one. I hope that you will join me then. As always, keep the song in your hearts. I'm Daniel Gundlach. See you next week.